Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're going to be having a look at the Bermuda Triangle. Now, you've probably heard of this, of course, if as a sailor you are taking note of places on the planet you need to be careful with your craft, then the Bermuda Triangle fits right into that. But what exactly is going on in there? Now, I'm going to sort of do this opposite way around. I think a lot of times when people talk about the Bermuda Triangle, they look at uh, the weird and wonderful and then fade off into the fact that, you know, what's actually going on there. We're going to do it back to front. We're going to start by saying there's nothing weird going on in the Bermuda Triangle, nothing that can't be explained because I want to put that out there first because people only ever listen to the start and the finish of something and remember and retain the facts that came at the beginning and the end of anything they're being uh, educated on. And I would hate for you to <laughs> take from this the fact that there are time warps, there are aliens, there are weird magnetic things. It's nothing like that. It's quite simple. It's easy to understand, but it does represent a legitimate risk. And I think that's the point that I'd rather come at this from than uh, tales of the strange and unexpected. Let's come at it from the point of view of like, well, something's going on there. What is it? And then we can identify it as a, uh, a risk and we can kind of rate that risk and we can try and do something about it. So the Bermuda Triangle firstly is in a particular geographic region. It runs from uh, Miami up to Bermuda and then it goes from Bermuda down to San Juan in uh, Puerto Rico. So you've got a big uh, area there. You're talking about a million square miles of uh, ocean. It's uh, an area which has some very distinctive features, and those features are kind of a lot of the of the the basis of the mystery. So as the uh, warm area of the Caribbean heats up during the summer, heats up under the sun the warm water starts to make a long journey that goes up out of the Caribbean, up past the Bahamas, up the east coast of the US. It's following the edge of the, um, the big kind of contour, which is on the edge of the North American tectonic plate. And that's where the drop-off is from about 200 meters at 600 feet down to oceanic pelagic depths. And that edge of that continental shelf, as you get up to about New York, that shelf starts to veer out towards the northeast and then it comes out and sticks off quite a long way off Nova Scotia here in Canada and off the banks of, um, of Newfoundland and creates the Grand Banks, this very shoal area, which is so famous for fishing, very, very uh, foggy most of the uh, year. Um, the the uh, Gulf Stream is running up that, uh, if, if, if you were to sort of drain the oceans and see where the Gulf Stream's running, it's running up alongside a big wall on its kind of left-hand side as it goes north. You've got this big wall of, uh, of the tectonic plate and the, the current is running along the side of that. That wall sticks off away from the Atlantic Canadian coast and, uh, and the, the Gulf Stream is then veered off towards well, towards England, actually, towards the UK, giving a microclimate to the south of the UK, which uh, somewhat belies its, its northerly latitude. But uh, to bring it back down to the area around Miami and Bermuda, that current, as it runs north, is running pretty fast. And uh, anybody that's ever done the Newport Bermuda race, you'll know that the Gulf Stream is a major element that you have to consider when you're doing that race because you're going down sort of against the current for, for a, a, a particular section of the race as you make your way from Newport to Bermuda. The interesting thing is that there are similar currents running along the edges of other land masses on the planet. As you look at a map of the world, 
the world is rotating like from left to right. The, the, the map, as you look at it in your book, everything's going from left to right. And that means there's a kind of like a, a sloshing effect that all of the water is kind of being sloshed to the left-hand side of the oceanic basins. And that means that those strong currents run up the left-hand side of the ocean. So you've got the Mozambique and the Agulhas current running up the side of Africa. You've got the Curioshio, the black snake as it's called, which runs at the edge of the Philippines plate and then up along the edge of the uh, Japanese mainland. And then over on the Atlantic, you've got the Gulf Stream running up the North American continent. So a normal kind of current running up the westerly side of an oceanic basin, transferring warm water from the equatorial regions to the cooler polar regions. And then, as we know, those polar currents are somewhat moderated by that warm water, and they in turn flow back to the south and indeed moderate the equatorial climate. Uh, something which I'm sure in the end we'll get around to talking about on this podcast of what happens with climate change if the Gulf Stream and that recycling of heat and that moderation that the the warm water and the cold water does respectively to each other, what happens if that stops? But that's not for today. But today we can say there's a strong current that's running because of known geological, known um, hydrodynamic forces. It's running up the uh, east coast of the US and it's going very swiftly past Miami, past the edge of the, the Bermuda Triangle there as it comes into Miami. Um, that is a very strong effect in the Bermuda Triangle mystery. That particular corner there where you're looking at um, Florida sticking down the panhandle, as it's called, of America that kind of drops down to the southeast of the continent, that area sticks out into the Gulf Stream, essentially. It sticks out into very warm waters, and it sticks out into a major shipping route. If you're looking at where ships are moving around in the world, one of the most, like, highways, the biggest highways, one of the most obvious shipping lanes in the world is between the Panama Canal and the English Channel. There's so much traffic is coming out of the Panama Canal and it's either going transatlantic over to Europe somewhere. And to be honest, if you're leaving if you're leaving Miami and you're heading for the English Channel or you're heading for the, um, Med the Mediterranean and going potentially through the uh, Suez Canal, the angle difference as you leave Miami, as you kind of come up around Cuba and then past Miami, there's no real difference. Everything that's coming out of the Panama Canal and is going up to New York, going up to Northern Europe or going to the Mediterranean is all passing through that corner of the Bermuda Triangle and I have little air bunnies going for every single time I say Bermuda Triangle during this <laughs> during this podcast. Well actually, let's go let's go somewhere different with this. I was going to introduce this later on, but let's do it earlier and it'll save my fingers from having to do the air bunnies every time I say Bermuda Triangle. I propose that we call it the Triangle of Bermuda. Okay? It's it's a bit of a sort of syntax thing. It's not really that big a deal. It's a linguistic twist, but you know, the Bermuda Triangle as we're going to see is something which was kind of dreamt up in the 60s and within a couple of years was uh, already being dispelled as a as a myth and a, and, a, and a weird story within a couple of years of the book being put out that started the story but that there is something going on in that area is undeniable and we're trying to get to the bottom of it so let's not refer to the bermuda triangle with its aliens time warps and all the rest of it but we can say the triangle of bermuda which is an area which does have this risk in it that we're discussing. So on that bottom corner, the panhandle of Florida, on the corner of the Triangle of Bermuda, the current is running very strongly from south to north, and you have a lot of shipping going through there. Now, 
that current as it runs up through there is you know running at like four or five knots which if you think back to sailing ships back in the day um, four or five knots would be the kind of current which could halt some ships if it wasn't a very strong day it could halt them if it was um, if they were going across it it could alter their 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 bearing their course it could it could change where they thought they were by a huge amount if they thought they were going from west to east and then they're in that Gulf Stream and they weren't able to do much to assess how strong the current was working for them they could easily be way off course no problem at all being pushed to the north by this current um, if they were in a storm or something old ships um, when they're trying to deal with heavy weather if they end up going um, into you know, like a, a situation where you've got wind against tide, or in this case wind against current, if you've got some kind of northerly breeze blowing and you've got a strong, strong current coming up from the south, the waves that it's going to produce are going to be pretty, pretty difficult to deal with. Um, an old sailing ship, when it's working with strong waves, strong wind, if it's going up against some difficult seas, it can end up doing what's called pug washing, which is where the kids' cartoon series in the UK, which many people remember, there's a lot of focus on uh, the the number two on that boat, who is called Master Bates. I kid you not, and uh, Roger the cabin boy. I also kid you not. I am quoting the names of uh, the characters of a particular show that I watched as a child, which all adults everywhere ever since have raised their eyebrows about. But the captain, who was called Captain Pugwash, pugwashing is when the vessel is just going up and down over the waves pitching high in the air with the bow and then high in the air with the stern and unable to make headway you're just pug washing you're staying still and going nowhere which i guess was the final joke in all of it but the more intellectual ones than the jokes they thought of for the other crew names but um vessels getting stuck in a in a heavy current that's got a wind over current situation would just be pug washing going nowhere and I say they're pitching their bows high they're pitching their sterns up it's a very easy situation to damage the vessel to lose crew and to um, not be where you think you are you think you're making good time you're getting pushed way off course or you're being held still or go the other way you're being your speed could be doubled by the fact that you're being pushed along by a current that's doing five knots so the current can have a massive effect on vessels meaning that they may not be exactly where you think they are or if you go looking for them in the event that something has happened to them you may be looking in the wrong spot because the current has had effect on the vessel while it's floating or if some kind of tragedy has befallen the vessel and it's 24 hours since you went to look for it is 12 hours since you went to look for a downed airplane or something like that at that point that current running at four or five knots has already washed all debris way out the way it's going to be a long long way from where the accident actually happened and it's gonna be very difficult then to ascertain what happened i.e it may have the characteristic that everything disappeared without any kind of uh, understanding of what was the actual accident so we've got a piece of water which has got huge current running through it and we've got a lot of traffic running through it now just that really would be enough to say that the triangle of bermuda is somewhere where you have to be cautious but that current and the effects that it has on the weather um, can create other effects which are even more potentially hazardous the first is that uh, you know a lot of weather when it kind of is, is built up in a, in a localized area rather than being a big weather system moving through a local weather system can be primarily powered by differences in uh, air temperature and more particularly 
by water temperature. If the water has got a bit of heat in it compared to the surrounding air, there can be enough there to create thermals, which are the beginning of thunderstorms, rainstorms, lightning storms, all that kind of stuff. And when you've got water traveling up the Gulf Stream, which is at 21 degrees, even by the time it gets to Nova Scotia, you know, my experience of going through the Gulf Stream actually primarily is coming out of Bermuda and going north, and then going through that band of the Gulf Stream, which swoops from going south to north, and at New York, it cuts over to the northeasterly flow. I'm normally cutting through that to get to Nova Scotia. And we call that, um, the worst part of that journey, we call it the Northern Wall, which is where you're going across the boundary of the Gulf Stream as it swoops along, going through that underground, well not underground, underwater rather, kind of channel. It's got that big wall on the left-hand side as it runs north. That big wall creates a very hard edge to the current where it literally, you're in, the Gulf Stream and then boom, you're out of the Gulf Stream. And then if you find it a little bit later on, oh, you're back in it. And you can see it most easily by looking at your hull temperature. If you've got any kind of instrument that uh, gives you depth, a lot of the ones these days, if it's vaguely modern, will also give you the temperature. And it might not be something particularly that you've looked at before, but knowing your hull temperature can actually be very, very useful for helping you know if you're in currents, if you're out currents, if there's you know, some something going on that's a little bit uh, unusual, you can often spot it with the hull temperature. And I've seen recently on the Raymarine gear that we've got on the uh, on the Maxi on Osprey that you can keep a graph of the of the uh, temperature, which I'm really into graphs on boats, on, on instruments and things. I've always done it last 10 years. Pretty much every piece of um, electronic hardware in the end will have somewhere in, deep within it. You may have to kind of flick through all the menus, but there's some way of displaying a graph. And by Seeing a graph, you can see trends in your true wind speed. You can see trends in the uh, ground wind direction. You can see trends in the hull temperature. You can see trends in your own boat speed. I remember, I think when I really got into this was when I was on the clipper boat and we had crew members who felt that they're doing a really good job of driving the boat very, very fast. They had a very dynamic, like heavy with the wheel style. And then they would pass over to one of the young ladies that was on board and then come below and you know, raise their eyebrows, cool. well, you know, it's going to be a bit slower now, I'm off the wheel. And I'd just be sat there with these graphs running, which showed course over the ground and speed over the ground. And I'd sit them down and say, you see here, see, this is you for the last half hour. This is your average speed in half an hour. And you can see these massive changes in direction where you, yeah, you had some pretty high speeds, but like most boys, you're just kind of recognizing the, the highs and you're ignoring all of the low numbers. But if you look now, the boat's on course, staying exactly on course and the average speed is up and that actually ended up educating many people how to steer the boat most effectively to get the most speed from it so graphs and graphs particularly that show your hull temperature if you're working with the gulf stream or if you're working with any other kind of current you're trying to find um, it's very easy to see that if you have a graph running on your instrument so the gulf stream running north and this huge amount of traffic now we have thunderstorms overhead and I can think of some of the strongest lightning storms and I've ever been in in my life I've been in the Gulf Stream I remember going up past uh, was that Miami yeah we're delivering a boat from Miami to Bermuda and getting caught in a lightning storm then that just went on for ages and it went on for ages because um, due to the nature of okay so we talk about lightning storm I'm going to try and not do a tangent but sometimes they happen um Everybody's got different ideas of what you should do in a lightning storm on a boat. And if you've got an experience, you've got some actual scientific knowledge, or you've got some passed down piece of information on this, I would love to hear it. Now, 
I've been with, with two boats that have been hit by lightning, but always at the dock and never at sea. So I can say that my method for dealing with lightning at sea, I can say that I have never been hit by lightning, but there's not necessarily a causal link between what I'm going to tell you and not being hit by lightning. It could just be a uh, it could just be a coincidence, right? So I'm not in any way saying this is the, the best thing to do, but I can tell you what I know and I can tell you what I do. And you, I'll tell you the theory based, it's based on. And then if you've got anything better, tell me because uh, I'd like to hear it. So the understanding I have is that there's no particular reason for lightning to want to hit the boat. Most boats, unless you've got a big carbon mast and maybe even a carbon hull and you know some kind of attenuator on the top of the mast, there's not really any benefit for the lightning to hit the boat because it's just kind of it's going to the water anyway why not just hit the water everything else between the sky and the water is some kind of form of resistance unless potentially it's a carbon mask karma boat and it may provide an easier path for the lightning for the power to get down well not technically down but up but let's not get into that but to, for the transfer of energy between the sky and the ocean the difference is if there's something going on on board the boat which is building up a static charge in the boat, then you have a situation where there is, I'm not sure if I'm using the right word here, but like an attenuation of the boat, it becomes like, oh, that's slightly easier for the lightning to hit that boat than it is for it to hit the ocean. It's an easier path for that transfer of power between the sky and the sea. So what I was always taught was that first you've got to turn off the engine because all the internals running around and around and around on the engine is building up a massive static charge. Maybe not massive like it's going to make your hair stand up when you stood on the boat, but from the lightning's point of view, there's definitely something else going on there that is uh, like of interest to it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you kind of personify the lightning here and it's going to seek that out rather than just hitting the ocean. The second thing is that if the boat's flowing through the water, certainly with boats that have higher baseline speeds, the water's just rushing past the outside of the boat all the time. And there is, I believe, this is what I was taught, a uh, static charge which is then imparted to the hull just by these particles flowing down the outside of it uh, at, at speed. So the thing to do, therefore, from my point of view, is if you're running the generator or you're running the engine, stop those. If you're uh, sailing along very quickly, unless there's a situation where you really have to keep moving, sometimes these storms have got a lot of wind in them and you've got to run before the wind. But if you don't, um, then you reduce sail or slow the boat down to try and lessen that effect of the static charge building up in the hull. Again, I'm definitely open to being told this is not quite right. I definitely want to just find the safest way to be on the ocean, particularly in a, in a lightning storm. Um, I guess the third thing is that uh, if you're on deck, then you need to be aware of the fact that the water on the deck, if it's raining, can um, sh can impart some of the charge that may come down the mast to you whilst you're stood on the deck. And I think there are some stories of people, uh, involuntary um, operation of their muscles in their legs, causing them to fall or leap, that's what I was taught, leap overboard uh, during a lightning storm. When the boat gets hit by lightning, it comes down the rigging, comes down the mast, goes across the water in the deck and you can have all sorts of weird effects on the crew not least of course if you've got anything up with your heart that kind of voltage particularly if it passes across your chest can be very dangerous to somebody um, can stop or interrupt the beat of your heart so what i'd be doing in the event of a lightning storm is stopping the boat as much as i could might be heaving too uh, definitely stopping the engine stopping the generator and then going below decks or if you have to be on deck then you get something like um uh, a PFD, one of those um, uh, life jackets. We were just discussing this the other day in the podcast about uh, life jackets, those uh, old style 
foam life jackets, what do they call them now? The abandonment life jackets, which is just in storage until that day you need it. You can sit on those, which would uh, you know mean that you're less likely to throw yourself over the sides. And of course, be tethered to the boat. You know, it goes without saying any kind of difficult situations, just stay connected to the boat. So if you're tethered to the boat and if the boat is slowed down, the engine stopped. Now people talk about like uh, flicking all of the um, switches so that uh, all of the electrical circuits are uh, uh, disconnected from the from the power supply um, I'm not sure that's gonna work like if the electricity has got the ability to jump from the clouds to the sky I think you can probably get across the air gap on your circuit breakers which is like you know a millimeter at best um, I think the entire boats gonna be affected by it and the kind of static charges that we're looking at here are the kind of ones that damage CMOS uh, chips digital microelectronics the chips that are used in some of the equipment are very very sensitive to static and therefore it's not really about the power flowing through your electrical system and up into the instruments up into whatever it is you've got connected it's more just that it is available on the boat it is flowing through the boat for that instant that you get hit by lightning and then um, it, it's fried either way now something you can do of course is to have uh, equipment in some kind of faraday cage which would be you could have like a, a pelly case which is in some kind of metal mesh bag i've seen those bags sold you can actually get them as a metal mesh bag for backpackers who don't want to have their the um, bag uh, slit open you can get like a wire mesh very light built bag that um, you can put things into so the captain I sailed with had a pelly case with at that time two GPS's loads of batteries and um, uh, I think there was another a digital watch and stuff and now what else did he have I think it was just the GPS's and then that was inside a pelly case and inside one of these travel bags travel mesh bags so I never saw it actually survive an electrical storm so I'm not sure it was any good but certainly the theory was there something watertight in a Faraday cage available if you need to um, come back after being hit by lightning now lightning as we say <clears throat> is definitely a risk to a boat at sea so now we've got this triangle of bermuda which has got a very strong current running through it it's got a lot of shipping going through it because of the transfer of heat up the up the current it's got um, a, a, the possibility of lightning storms thunderstorms very strong weather so suddenly we're starting to see that in this area of the world there is definitely a focus on uh, on threats to to navigation on the sea. Now we'll discuss a little bit about the airplanes that have had problems there later on, but we'll just focus on the on the sea for now. Um, I think it's a, a, a decent point also to start to bring in the um, the word of the um, U.S. Coast Guard because they obviously have been inundated since <laughs> since their inception. I'm sure with people telling them that there's uh, aliens in the Bermuda Triangle and that. Um, something needs to be done about it so they made a statement i think it was 1992 they got approached by a british um, producer for a tv show and they had a statement which they made which is is thus and i think it really kind of helps us as mariners to understand what's going on in this area the bermuda triangle or as we'll just call it the triangle of bermuda so says the u.s coast guard the majority of disappearances can be attributed to the area's unique factors the Gulf Stream, a warm ocean current flowing from the Gulf of Mexico around the Florida Straits northeastward toward Europe, is extremely swift and turbulent. It can quickly erase any evidence of a disaster. The unpredictable Caribbean Atlantic storms that give birth to waves of great size as well as water spouts often spell disaster for pilots and mariners, not to mention that the area is in Hurricane Alley. The topography of the ocean floor varies from extensive shoals to some of the deepest marine trenches in the world. With the interaction of strong currents over reefs, 
the topography is in a constant state of flux and breeds development of new navigational hazards. Not to be underestimated is the human factor. A large number of pleasure boats travel the waters between Florida's Gold Coast, the most densely populated area in the world, and the Bahamas. All too often, crossings are attempted with too small a boat, insufficient knowledge of the area's hazards, and lack of good seamanship. I guess that's the other things we can let's circle around on a few of those. So we talked about the shipping, the professional shipping that goes missing um, up from uh, the the Panama Canal, heading towards Europe, heading towards New York. It's all going through the uh, the straits there, and as such, it means that you've got a lot of big ships that uh, when they go missing, people are very you know surprised. Hey, where did this thing go? What's uh, why is the nothing to be found thereafter? That um, Gulf Stream flowing north anything happens to a vessel unless you're right there at the moment that it happens it's like an etch-a-sketch being shook by an angry child everything's gone within a couple of hours it could be 10 15 30 miles away Um, you're never going to know where anything happened if indeed the ship was exactly where you thought it was certainly when we're talking about older vessels um, you know going uh, pre-1990 or something where they may be actually using celestial nav they might be using dead reckoning and they may not know exactly where they are so that's one aspect we've discussed that already but this thing with the um the number of boats if you ever want to kind of get a feel for how densely populated florida is with um, boats i used to live in fort lauderdale if you zoom in on fort lauderdale with google maps you will see that the area it was swamp originally and it's been reclaimed and it's been reclaimed on little you know you build a main boulevard and then off that you put an avenue and then off the avenue is a couple little cul-de-sac closes that's what you see from the road. And then each side of the road is lined with houses. But on the back side of the houses, each house has got a garden that runs down to the water. And the waterways are just as numerous as the, as the roadways. And every house seems to have a boat or boats alongside it. And they've all got very quick access to what is obviously inshore, alongside those beautiful golden beaches, a beautiful area to be operating a boat. So You've got literally millions of boats. I think the figure is in the U.S. You've got um, is it 88 million people a year have some interaction with boats. <clears throat> pardon me. Um, in in the U.S. that they might just be bass fishing or, or kayaking or they've got a sailboat, they've got a motorboat, pontoon boat, whatever it is. But some kind of interaction. You you're dusting up against a third of the population have got some interaction with boats. Florida, in that way, is one of the most densely populated areas around Miami and and. Uh, and Fort Lauderdale but in terms of boats it must be one of the most densely populated area for boats so whilst a big ship will go missing and we'll all question where did it go no one's got any questions as to what happened to that little little boat that went disappearing off in 1995 and was never seen of again because at that point there's no EPUBs there's no uh, AIS there's no anything the person may or may not know where they are they just kind of disappear it's like it is a mystery as to where they've gone but of course, they're still subject at that time to all the factors that we're talking about. So the next thing here in the uh, Coast Guard's write-up about this, they're talking about the fact that you're in Hurricane Alley. That's a very good point. The weather in this area is um, is got local effects, which are things like the, uh, the 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 thunderstorms, the lightning storms that we discussed. But you're also in an area which has a much larger issue going on, which is that all these hurricanes, all these extremely strong storms come brewing up from the Caribbean generated by the the warm seas down there in the Caribbean and um, they come up and they whether they recurve back out into the Atlantic or they head up the coast towards Nova Scotia either way they're off the coast of Miami which means they're inside the, the Triangle of Bermuda 
and they can have a massive effect. And for every hurricane, there's probably four or five tropical storms or gales or just heavy wind systems that come through, which can be enough to make you know a, a normal voyage for a small boat into into a disaster. So you've got at the macro level, you've got big storm systems coming through. At the micro level, you've got localized systems because of the, the warm water and cold water. You've got lightning, you've got um, thunderstorms and rainstorms and all sorts of difficult conditions. Now, water spouts. Um, if you listen to uh, the Rare Nautical Reads podcast I do, which I read these books, we read one um, a little while ago. It's the first one I think I did is called Desperate Voyage by a guy called John Caldwell. Really good book. Um, I just... You know, when I record those things, I record them and I make a nice clean uh, version of it with the idea in the end that we'll make them into audio books. But as you can imagine, there's a lot of uh, bloopers and, and me messing up and how to go back and re-record things. It takes about 45 minutes to record 25 minutes of me uh, speaking for one of those things. That book, I've never had to do more um, re-edits because of me laughing. Because the guy's, <laughs> the guy's style, like he kind of knows nothing about sailing, but he's also quite an adventuresome, um, spur-of-the-moment type, type person, which is not necessarily a good mix with sailing. And to you know, spool, spool forward through the story very quickly, he picks up a boat in Panama. It's just after the Second World War. He wants to get from North America, from the West Coast of North America, back to Sydney, Australia, where his wife is waiting for him. It's like 1946. And there's no boats, no planes, no schedule, no anything. I never really considered that before I read that book. But after the war, everything was in turmoil. He just can't get himself home. So eventually, after lots of twists and turns, he ends up with this 29-foot yawl and uh, sets off across the Pacific. And I've never, ever read a story where someone is so close to death. <laughs> the fact that he survives it is uh, an absolute miracle. But one of the things that uh, happens is that... Uh, he says that he'd often seen water spouts from the, the deck of ships that he'd been working on and that he wonders what it would be like to be in one. So he just drives his 29-foot yawl into a, into a water spout. Now, I think luckily the one that he picked wasn't that big, but um, you, you can have some which are massive. And I, I watched a little video on YouTube about this with the idea of coming into this, um, <clears throat> this discussion today. And the fact is, you know, you can get water spouts which kind of build up at sea. Um, they often, when I've seen them, they can be kind of, how do they develop? They kind of they kind of roll on their sides and then start to flick themselves upright. That's the couple times I've seen water spouts develop. They're kind of like a rolling sideways thing, almost looking a bit like a pampero, which is like a, a cigar shape as the cloud comes in towards you. Obviously, massive updraft inside them. And then somehow it, it stands itself up on its end and then it starts sucking water and going up into a water spout. And to, to illustrate further the... the um, the, the likelihood of this happening in this area. I can remember being at the Miami Boat Show, and if memory serves, it was 2008. Or it might have been late 2007. I don't know when the Miami Boat Show is anymore, but you know, it's hot, it's sunny, it's Miami. I can't really tell by the seasons what it was from my memory. But Miami Boat Show, and uh, if you've not been to that, they have three different locations. I think one's like inside a big tented complex or exhibition hall. One part of it is in a harbor where the boats are down you know in the water and the other bit is on the river and all the super yachts were in the river this particular year you know they range between 80 foot and 130 foot i was uh, on board a 125 foot boat and um these things are jammed in that close because most of the time the weather at that time of year so i guess it was summer was so benign that uh, nothing's going to happen right so they're they're within 
15, 16 inches of each other at points. They're, you know, they're anchored, moored, they're rafted, they're, and all these walkways are then put between the boats. And it's an amazing thing to go and see, you know, these massive boats right next to each other. And you can wander around, pretend that you're actually going to buy one. And um, I was on the boat and it just kind of gone a bit dark, a bit overcast. And then I heard all this screaming. And uh, I looked up, looked around, kind of followed people's gaze. And up in the sky, a water spout was coming down from a cloud and was rapidly darkening, which meant there was, you know, a lot of kind of material and a lot of kind of uh, water vapor in there. It felt like there was a lot of energy. It was moving quickly. It was circling around and um, it reached down almost to the water. And it was definitely like up river from where we were. And then just as quickly as it started to form, it just tapered off and, and thinned out and gone away and it went back to being a lovely sunny day but I do not know exactly what would have been the effect of that thing touching down in the middle of the river with all those boats moored so close together I can only imagine it would have been newsworthy but um, they do form and uh, on the little video I was watching they were pointing out that the fact that um, sometimes they are now they had a word was it I feel like it wasn't it was tornado it was like a variation on the word tornado like tornadic behavior or something like that the guy was calling it he was a water spout chaser and he was very interested to go and see these things and how they form. He's saying that uh, when they're a tornado on land and that that goes out onto the sea, it can take with it huge amounts of energy. Um, I don't, th- from what he implied, they don't, they're not that strong when they start on the sea. But again, I'll take, uh, I'll take input on this guy. I know very little about water spouts. <clears throat> Pardon me. But the, um, oh, actually, you know, I've got some coffee here, which I can get into. It's the weirdest thing. Since I had COVID uh, like four or five months ago, I have almost like mild asthma symptoms. I don't know if anyone else experienced this as well. I, I was on a trip going over from um, Newfoundland to the UK and uh, I had uh, Klaus and Danielle on board. Hi, hi to them if they're listening. And uh, both doctors and uh, they said that they felt what I was uh, exhibiting was like asthma-like symptoms. Um, and the only thing that's happened that is anything in that area is, uh, is COVID. So uh, when I do these... Um, broadcast now when I do these uh, podcasts I have to literally take it like an antihistamine beforehand so I don't end up uh, like I can almost get wheezy just sitting and talking at a microphone it's very very strange not uh, not cool at all so <clears throat> COVID hey <laughs> yeah that's uh, that's a whole discussion in itself isn't it mm. I'm sure it's not anything that coffee can't fix all right so water spouts we've got water spouts we've got uh, lightning we've got uh, thunderstorms rainstorms we've got hurricane alley we've got a lot of shipping commercial shipping we've got a lot of pleasure vessels we've got the gulf stream running at four or five knots going north we've got super warm water which in the area of the Bermuda triangle is still surrounded by warm water it's not like the temperature difference is as much as it might be up here in um, nova scotia when we cross that northern wall i mentioned on the um, the, the, the Gulf Stream, we go from 21 degree water to 8 degree water normally within 6 hours and we're doing like 10 knots so within 60 miles you go from 21 degrees Celsius to 8 degrees Celsius in um, you know <clears throat> in an afternoon something like that it's a massive massive change so all those factors play into what's going on in the Bermuda Triangle and the Triangle of Bermuda as we're going to try and push it to be called now what else is going on I saw a lot of people saying that there were weird magnetic anomalies and then I looked up what the US Coast Guard had to say about it and interestingly of all the places on the planet to discuss uh, um, magnetic anomalies the coast of Florida is not your best option that's because 
Most of the time, as you know, when we're doing navigation, we're, we're working with our compass course and we're working with true. And I will just say right now that I very, very rarely do anything using compass courses or anything to do with declination or variation anymore. And we can have a discussion about that if you like. But uh, what I will do is um, work everything out in true. You know, I'm mostly doing electronic navigation and then I'm taking a lat long position and putting it onto a chart. And I'm working, as I've discussed before when we did the podcast, is for um, uh, estimated position error. Um, the likelihood of being able to flip from modern electronic navigation to full celestial navigation, even inside of 24 hours, is very unlikely. That You have to keep an excellent log, which I do, and uh, from that you then have to know exactly what your last position was, which you would, but then you'd have to have your forenoon site, and you need to run that to your afternoon site, and you need to get your lat long, which I could do, no problem, we have the the um, the gear on board, we've got the, the sextant, and we've got the, uh, the, the tables of declination and all that stuff, we've got the almanac, but the likelihood of being able to get into an accurate position on a traditional navigational system quick enough to save myself from danger is so unlikely as to be impossible. The much more likely case is that I would run away in the direction that I know is most likely to be safe, which is I operate on the eastern seaboard of the US and Canada most of the time I would head to the east, making sure I don't hit Sable Island or, um, or Bermuda, of course. Um, and then I would spend time out in open space to then have a go at coming back onto the coast using my new celestial navigation. But there'd be a 24-hour turnaround period. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because the major factor which some people point to in the Bermuda Triangle is that there are weird magnetic anomalies. Now, for me, as an electronic uh, navigation you know, is my primary thing as an electronic navigation user, as a GPS user, I'm not going to be affected by compass aberrations, right? The funny thing is, in the edge of the Triangle of Bermuda, up alongside Miami, inside this area with the Gulf Stream, inside this area with all the traffic and all the other things we've discussed, you're actually in line pretty much with the uh, magnetic North Pole and in line with the true North Pole. So the true North Pole is obviously the axis that the planet is turning around. It's the intersect point of all of the lines of longitude. The the magnetic pole at the moment is moving pretty quickly. And that's a discussion we can have on another day, just what's exactly going on with the uh, the magnetic pole. But for the longest time, it's been up north of Canada, northeastern corner of Canada, in an area called Baffin Bay, which is the entrance into the um, the northeast pa Northwest Passage, sorry, um, and it's been rapidly going kind of north towards the pole for a couple of years now. It started to speed up a lot in the 1990s, but if you were to draw a line through the magnetic pole and through the true pole of the planet, that line would give you a nice line almost straight down to Miami, which means that in that area, on the western side of the Triangle of Bermuda, there's almost no issues with uh, magnetic anomalies. And the U.S. Coast Guard statement was that they had never found any magnetic anomalies. Now, there's one thing, you know, people then report, well, I've had my magnetic anomalies. I had a problem. There's always issues with other ferrous materials getting close to the compass unexpectedly. There's issues where people have wired things uh, up past the compass to, you know, chart plotters above the compass or lights into the compass. They've done something which is affecting the compass, which they didn't realize was going to affect it. So they've kind of created their own uh, anomaly on the compass, which you've got deviation, of course, which is what the boat is doing to the compass. And then you've got variation, which is the interaction between the magnetic pole and the true pole of the planet. The people can end up accidentally introducing deviation without knowing it. 
But there is another kind of deviation that can happen, which is pretty unexpected, which may happen on the American eastern seaboard, but I would expect it to more near be Long Island Sound. And that is that you can end up with submarines under you. <laughs> okay, so this might sound like I'm just kind of brewing this up. This may be along the lines of the uh, aliens and time warps, but um, I talked to some guys that worked on submarines as uh, navigators, and their instruments are unable to detect fishing nets very easily. But they're very aware of the fact that sailboats do not drive through fishing nets because of the keel, of course, right? Now, they can hear the difference through their, you know, they're basically what a submarine is doing most of the time is listening through its uh, hydrophones, through its sonar. It's listening to the environment around it, and it's relatively easy for them to work out what's a sailboat. They can identify the target. They can identify the range. They can come to a position underneath the sailboat if they think they're passing through other vessels which they've identified as fishing vessels and then the sailboat will lead the submarine through them now how often does this happen well not very often right but if you're coming onto the continental plate inside of 200 meters 600 feet of water and there may be fishing boats that are dredging with big nets the primary thing is that of course the submarine doesn't want to pull the fishing boat down into the ocean and kill everybody on board which has unfortunately happened in the past so whatever tricks they can use they will use now there's going to have to be a bit of an effect on your compass if 4,000 tons of metal turns up beneath it. Now, most of them are ti uh, titanium, titanium shells, but it's going to have some kind of effect. And I have observed this once um, off of uh, Dartmouth in the UK, which is a place where submarines once in a while used to come into, particularly when they were uh, the Oberon-class submarines, which were uh, diesel-electric boats. They're coming up and down. Um, they're specialists at... at uh, uh, finding little uh, kooky places to hang out and listen. That's kind of what their job is. And um, they, I remember going in there and the compass literally was like 70 degrees off. And then the effect passed. And about 10, 15 minutes later, five, six miles ahead of us, up comes an Oberon-class submarine, sail first and bow first. And she's on the surface, well clear of us, going into the uh, entrance to the river there. And that was, uh, uh, that's when I was introduced to this idea by the captain I was working with, who was ex-Navy, that they may have been under us momentarily um, as we were passing into the uh, shallow area in the entrance to the river. So I'm not saying that every time the compass uh, points the wrong way, there's a submarine underneath you, but it's an example of the fact that there may be things occurring which have a very terrestrial, normal explanation, which can cause very unexpected results. So... Just going back to this uh, thing from the uh, U.S. Coast Guard, the last paragraph really is the one that um, I want to focus on, and it's the one that spawns really this this podcast. I haven't gone into all the weird things that people say are in the Bermuda Triangle. We can talk about that li a little bit if you like, um, but uh, this last paragraph is really why I wanted to bring this up, and I wanted to frame it in the this is an area with dangers let's call it the Triangle of Bermuda instead of the Bermuda Triangle, and let's recognize those dangers and let's do something about them. So the end of the US Coast Guard one, just to repeat, is not to be underestimated is the human factor. A large number of pleasure boats travel the waters between Florida's Gold Coast, the most densely populated area in the world, and the Bahamas. All too often, crossings are attempted with too small a boat, insufficient knowledge of the area's hazards, and lack of good seamanship. So... The Bahamas are right there. And as I say, I lived in Fort Lauderdale and there's a good community of people who bring their boats down through the inland coastal waterway and then sit in Fort Lauderdale ready to step off to the islands. They're going south. They've listened to every uh, Jimmy Buffett song there is. They're ready to go. The boat's ready to go. 
And there's only one problem. And the problem, of course, is that sailing from the panhandle of Florida to the Bahamas is 90 real miles of open ocean sailing. You're kind of within 45 miles of each coast at any time. But when you add in all these factors we're talking about with the Gulf Stream, with the kind of weather that it can kick up, with the amount of traffic that's out there, you may as well just say that's offshore sailing because to anybody that's making that leap who has not done that kind of sailing before, it may as well be the open ocean. In fact, it could be more dangerous than the open ocean. So not only is there the issue that big ships are going missing, but small vessels that are perhaps a little bit underprepared, people don't have the skill set, they can find themselves in a, a very treacherous situation where it just looks on a chart like you're just going to hop across the blue bit and you'll be in the nice yellow bits where you can continue your dream. That piece of water is not to be viewed in that way. It's to be viewed as the Triangle of Bermuda, which has some very specific risks associated with it, and it need, you need to be careful. The other thing with all those boats going backwards and forwards, all those ships rather, going backwards and forwards, uh, up and down into the Caribbean and to the Suez Canal, uh, sorry, the Panama Canal, is that for a small vessel, they are a massive risk. And if you're not used to dealing with that risk of vessels at night or, you know, you, you can end up in a situation where you do decide to go to sleep for a couple of hours. And if you get mown down by some big ship, they're not going to notice at all. And so it's just going to be, uh, a, a, you know, a legendary mystery that lasts forever as to what exactly happened to you. But Oftentimes, as we've said, there's some very basic um, things underneath all this which come down to human error or the geography of the area, the meteorology of the area. So um, again, I underline the fact that I think it's better to deal with this uh, issue we're discussing, not as the, the Bermuda Triangle, like something silly that we, you know, oh, Bermuda Triangle aliens and time warps and all the rest of it. Why don't we just discuss the Triangle of Bermuda, which has a number of risks in it, which are specific to that area and uh, in no way have a mysterious origin, but just have um, a, a focusing of a number of complex issues that can interrelate, interrelate with each other and cause vessels to disappear unexpectedly. Now, I did, I did initially put down a load of notes here all about um, the, uh, the uh, various uh, vessels and, and things which have gone missing in the Bermuda Triangle because I think initially I was going to like talk about the Bermuda Triangle and what it is and all the rest of it but um, I'm not sure actually that I'm so interested to do that anymore I kind of like the way that we've gone instead which is just let's not discuss all the craziness and let's uh, if there's anything to be taken from it it's it's this that um, I, I, I looked through the uh, Wikipedia page about the Bermuda Triangle, of course, and then they have a separate page, which is called the List of Bermuda Triangle Instances. The only weird thing I could find is that there's 17 aircraft incidents and there's 17 incidents on ships. So there you go. If there's some kind of uh, something in the number 17, that's what it's all about. Don't leave on the 17th. Um, the incidents at sea, it starts in 1492, where Christopher Columbus and the crew of the Santa Maria reported seeing unknown lights one day before the landing at... Guanahani. I don't know that name. Guanahani. Um, I believe that in his log, he actually said that he'd had issues with his compass, but he didn't want to mention it to the uh, the crew because they were already at a point where they're about to mutiny. And then when he mentioned the lights to them, that's when they really did get nutty and uh, and wanted to get off the boat. Um, thank God they, they met the, the land soon thereafter. But um, quite what that was, uh, <clears throat> I don't know, probably a submarine. <laughs> October 11th, 1492. Um then it, then it jumps to the 1800s. It jumps to 1800. USS Pickering on course from Guadeloupe to Delaware, lost with 90 people on board. And it says possibly lost in a gale. And again, I, when I looked through this and I got the US Coast Guard stuff, they indicated that a lot of people had kind of um, 
they they'd taken the incidents and then kind of um, magnified what had happened to a point where it, it had some element of mystery to it and perhaps completely disconnected it from the weather which was prevailing at the time, which, you know, possibly lost in a gale. Well, yeah, possibly lost in a gale. You probably say that with a lot of ships. Oh, I, you know, I did pick up. I picked up also the fact that um, uh, Sable Island, which is just off of Nova Scotia here, a couple hundred miles uh, from, from where I'm sitting right now, it's a sandbank, which is uh, off uh, Nova Scotia. And it's a very common place in history for ships to come in. And then with a big Atlantic gale came in, the ships would come in and anchor and like hide out behind the island. And just to give you some kind of like reference in this, whilst the Wikipedia page for the Bermuda Triangle says 17 incidents on boat, the interesting thing is that Sable Island has 350 shipwrecks on it. Like these 17 boats that have gone missing, it may well have been in unusual situations for many of them. But the reality is that they uh, ships are being wrecked all the time. And you know, I'm reading over on my Rare Nautical Reads podcast all these older books, which I think deserve a second shake and, and, and you know see what's in them for the modern sailor to learn from. I think there's a huge amount there. But for all of them, the navigation is a massive issue, a massive, massive issue. And of course, their understanding of what the weather is is based on looking at the sky and using rhymes and kind of very basic bits of information from a, a thermometer and a hygrometer and the anemometer and the wind direction and, and, and uh, you know, their almanacs of what may or may not happen. It was massive guesswork. So how are they going to know that uh, hurricane, whatever it's called, is coming up the coast? We have five or six days of uh, notice. Um, they've got like a couple of hours. They see the glass starting to drop. And now we're in this massive thing. And they may not just have been in a position that they could get out of it. They're in the Gulf Stream. They're, you know, they're, they're beset by all sorts of issues, which um, really without any kind of difficulty we've kind of gone through here there's not really much more to add to the story here of uh, what happens in the triangle of bermuda there's enough within that within the the current within the weather it can create with the temperature differences in the water within the um the, the amount of shipping that's going through there there's enough going on there that that's uh you know with that amount of traffic that you're going to have some mysteries because i guess the other piece of information is how many vessels are going backwards and forwards through there in a year. And clearly, it's going to be in the tens of thousands. So in tens of thousands of vessels transiting that area each year for centuries, we now have, you know, let's say 20 that are a bit of a, a, a mystery. And uh, most experts put down to very basic things that we've heard of from the U.S. Coast Guard. Just going on through this list here somewhat you know every single one i'm looking at here there's like the the rosalie found abandoned 1840 the you know there are always going to be unusual circumstances where through whatever processes vessels end up through piracy through uh, uh, some kind of illness on board through um just completely unknown circumstances which we have no idea about they can end up in a situation where the boats adrift look at the entire time that there was privateers up and down the coasts of um the the american uh eastern seaboard and the caribbean the vessels there would be taken the crew would be taken prisoner or 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 indeed murdered and um the vessels then were sailed by skeleton crews back to wherever they needed to go to collect the prize if that didn't work out exactly the way that everyone was thinking and the vessel blew off in a storm before the crew could be gotten on board it well then you've got a derelict vessel right that's a very 
that sounds like a kind of crazy uh, uh, explanation for how a boat might end up um, completely on its own. And yet, for a period of time, I've got a book right in front of me here called The Atlantic Privateers, which is all about the privateers uh, up and down the American seaboard that I'm thinking of reading for the Rare Nautical Reads podcast. That was a whole like business, essentially, for years and years and years. And think of how many vessels would end up sort of drifting around and derelict and half blown up and skeleton crews that then had an issue and they themselves got pirated off into all sorts of things were going on which are totally out of the ordinary for us today and yet were part of what was going on in the water at that time. So to look back to the 1800s uh, and, and try and guess what happened to USS Pickering, USS Wasp, USS Wildcat, um, it's it's so impossible for us to do it. We cannot take those pieces of uh, uh, information as evidence for um, some strange, mysterious part of the planet that uh, uh, that you know eats uh, eats boats and airplanes. Um, here we go, perfect one here. 1881. According to legend, a sailing ship, the Ellen Austin, found a derelict vessel and placed a crew to sail the vessel to port. Two versions of what happened to the vessel are: the vessel was either lost in a storm or was found again without a crew. Lawrence David Cush, author of the Bermuda Triangle Mystery Sold, found no mention in 1880 or 1881 newspapers of this alleged incident. He did trace the legend to a book by Rupert Gould, The Stargazer Talks, published in 1943. The Ellen Austin did exist. A check from Lloyd's of London Records proved the existence of Meta, built in 1854, and that in 1880 Meta was renamed the Ellen Austin. There were no Meta, he goes, so Zuckerberg was sailing around in the 1880s. Um, there were no casualty listings for this vessel or any vessel at that time that would suggest a large number of missing men were placed on board a derelict that later disappeared. Although one website includes the alleged derelict vessel incident, it does find that Rupert Gould talked about the legend on radio in the 1930s. Likewise, the website traces the derelict story to a June 1906 newspaper story which claims a derelict ship incident took place in 1891. However, the 1906 story does not give a reference where this story came from. This is what I found all the way through this. I found that it's just law based upon law based upon law. And I'm not even saying lies upon lies. It's just stories build and stories build, right? So that you get to a point where you're starting to then build an entire... Um, uh, belief system around the Bermuda Triangle on lots and lots of uh, very scant pieces of information which themselves are, you, you know, their stories based on what's most entertaining a around sailing rather than, you know, the actual facts of what happened. Um, the, the thing I think that we should stay kind of clear of here is to get too sucked into what happened to all these different boats. It's a quite an easy thing to, um, to, uh, to get yourself into. Uh, uh, 1967, December 22nd, Miami hotel owner and yachtsman Dan Burak, 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 I think, set out on his cabin cruiser witchcraft with a priest named Patrick Horgan. This sounds like a joke. The ship was taken one mile off the Miami coastline so that Burak and Horgan could view the Christmas lights visible from the shore. That night, Barack radioed a distress, distress call to the Coast Guard, informing them that the boat's propeller had struck something underwater and that the vessel would need to be towed in. The Coast Guard requested that he send up a flare in roughly 20 minutes so that the boat could be more easily located. This is on a night with fireworks, right? The official... Oh, no, hang on, not... For, uh, Christmas lights, sorry, beg your pardon. Okay. The official who received the call reportedly later noted that Barack did not seem too concerned about the witchcraft, a boat that Barack had fitted with a special flotation device in its hull. 
When the Coast Guard arrived at the location from which Barak called, he, Horgan and the witchcraft were nowhere to be found. Over the following days, a search was conducted over hundreds of square miles of ocean, but the boat and its passengers were not able to be located. Well, look, it's a very sad story that anybody should pass away at sea at any time. The fact that he's fitted a... Um, uh, a, 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 an emergency flotation uh, device to the boat immediately kind of raises my uh, like spidey senses that something's going on here that uh, maybe he was trying to do a demonstration of how well his special flotation device worked um, and then maybe it didn't kind of work out the way that he thought it was going to do um, the, the, the propeller had struck something underwater okay then it should just be drifting around basically where it was or did he get mown down by something or it's 1967 submarines it could be submarines and like i don't know but i don't think that this is evidence for there being a a, a wormhole over uh, bermuda um hmcs uh saint lorion uh sank off cape hatteras the closest point on the north american mainland to bermuda the ship took on water after encountering the tail end of a storm again if the, Cape Hatteras, I don't believe, is even in the Bermuda Triangle, right? Because it's uh, if you draw a line from Miami to Bermuda, Cape Hatteras is north of it. So that's not even in the area. Um, and then 2015, late July, two 14-year-old boys, Austin Stefanos and Perry Cohen, went on a uh, fishing trip in their 19-foot boat. Despite the 15,000 square nautical mile search by the Coast Guard, the pair's boat was found a year later off the coast of Bermuda, but the boys were never seen again. Unfortunately, you know, that's the kind of thing what happens where two, two boys going out on the water in that part of the world, if they go far enough out and start to get into an eddy of the Gulf Stream, which sweeps them away, that's that, right? And unfortunately, again, a 14-year-old is probably not the person to make the correct judgment about what to do in that circumstance. They may have attempted to swim for it, um, thinking that uh, the boat was just essentially at a standstill and they were going to swim the, swim their way back to safety. And then, of course, they never heard of again. And then... 2015. Okay, this is a very well-known one. The SS Alfaro, with a crew of 33 aboard, sank off the coast of the Bahamas within the Triangle after sailing into Hurricane Joaquim. Search crews identified the vessel 15,000 feet below the surface. That is a very interesting uh, one to look up. Um, you can find it online on YouTube. Look up the SS L and then Faro. E-L is one word and then F-A-R-O, Alfaro. There's a very interesting uh, story to be followed on that, including the fact that the um, the bridge voice recorder um, is uh, is fitted into the, uh, the 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 beacon, which is like the black box essentially for for a ship, and they were able to get a lot of that recording back and understand that uh, unfortunately that was much more about the captain, very experienced gentleman, making a very poor decision about how to deal with a uh, a, a very strong weather system. Um, maybe at that point, um, a little bit too complacent about the fact the ship could get through it, when unfortunately, no, it couldn't. It was carrying all sorts of heavy plant machinery and trucks and vehicles. And uh, when water got inside the lower decks of the ship, the uh, the vehicles there, the strap downs hadn't been done correctly, uh, not to what the, the company said it needed to be done. And uh, the vessels, uh, sorry, the, 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 the cars and things inside the vehicles, rather inside the vessel, got loose and then of course you've got the free surface effect of the water plus all the weight of all these vehicles moving around and unfortunately it led to the ship being uh, being lost so um you know i'm not going to go too much further with those things because i don't think it really goes anywhere i think there's some mysteries all over the place and one of the shows i was watching they were saying that there's a um 
there's a, a, a similar like triangle on a lake in Wisconsin with boats that go missing, all the rest of it, but no one's getting het up about that. You could probably do this in a great number of places around the world, the English Channel, the Malacca Straits, um, round the Cape of Good Hope, previously called the Cape of Storms. You know, there's a lot of places in the world where ships go missing. The stuff with the airplanes is a little bit more mysterious to me, but that's because I don't know anything about airplanes. The, the, the weather things and the water and the, and the, the magnetic stuff, the, the planes are not affected by that as much. But you've still got a lot of people, you know, when I look across the list of things here, it's there's like some of it is commercial, but there's a lot of like Piper uh, aircraft and uh, Cessnas and uh, and small things. Clearly, there's things like the um, Flight 19 with the TBF Avengers that went uh, missing in 1945. Um, there's some pretty good explanations of those kind of things now online where a lot more information has come forward. And whilst we don't really know exactly what happened, we have a much better idea of the, the likely circumstances whereby these aircraft were lost. One thing I think the aircraft thing does bring to bear is that there may be one other element in all this. And as we go in towards the end of this podcast, we'll, we'll introduce the fact there is one mystery there which might be useful, which is the fact that um, a lot of people have said that the aircraft and the ships could also be affected by methane deposits. Now, methane, as we know, <laughs> seems to be the major cause of uh, global warming as well. But there are massive amounts of uh, methane uh, under the seabeds, uh, rotting sea creatures and, and fauna and flora from you know millions of years create massive pockets of methane. It is possible that if you had some kind of geological uh, faults, some kind of geological movement, um, or just a natural progression of these things building up, that huge releases of methane could bubble to the surface. And if a ship was to be exactly in that location at that time, which again, there's a lot of shipping in this area, um, huge amount of um, bubbling at the surface of the water would cause the vessel to instantly lose displacement and it would immediately go underwater and immediately flood and, and be gone, right? Unless all the hatches were closed. But there's never been any accounts of like huge foaming bubbles of, you know, something going on in the middle of the uh, ocean. Um, you'd think that there'd have been a lot of near misses if there were some actual hits. Uh, the idea though is that these um, bubbles, these these pockets of methane, could then leave the surface of the of the sea and then travel up and go into the intakes on a on an aircraft. Um, I'd have to leave you to perhaps there's people that know more about this than I do. I, I, it seems unlikely to me. It seems unlikely to me. Um, I, I I don't see. Could it happen? Yeah, physically it can happen. And there have been situations where oil rigs have hit pockets of gas and then the oil rig has lost displacement and gone underwater. There's at least one of those. But uh, a vessel at speed, it would need to be directly in that place at that time. It would have to have all its deck hatches and everything open. It's just instantly flooded. Because remember, if, it, if it's not instantly flooded in the moment it goes underwater, then it means it's got enough reserve buoyancy inside it to pop back to the surface. And wow, what a story that would be to tell. We would all hear about that pretty quickly. As soon as that methane's left the surface of the water, does it really have the kind of density required to to destroy uh, an aircraft's engine? And even then you'd hear the mayday, mayday, mayday as the, as the planes went down, right? So... I don't know, there's, some, there's still some things to be understood about the Triangle of Bermuda, but I think what we can do just from this general 
rundown on the subject is we can start to take the crazy out of it and we can add in an element of caution. If you're transiting through an area which has very strong currents, where those currents are moving huge amounts of hot water to somewhere where there's cold water, and therefore there's going to be a lot of lightning and, and, and thunder and, and rainstorms and possibly water spouts and all the rest of it, you've got to be cautious. And I think in that area of the world, there's good reason to be cautious. It's it's a tricky area. There's a lot of big um, ships going through there, and uh, it's easy to get run down. It's easy to uh, you know be in a situation where uh, you then get swept away if your vessel's damaged or incapacitated. You can get swept away by the current, and then it's very difficult for folks to really know what's going on next. I do, as I look across at this uh, list, though, I do see something kind of interesting, which is that the um, accidents. It goes. Uh, there's quite a lot of stuff going on in uh, the period before GPS came in and uh, in, I guess before EPUBs really came in, it's sort of like 1941, 1958, 1963, 1967, and then 1980, and then 2015. It's like there's a big gap. So the one in 2015 is the Al Faro and the other ones are two poor young boys that were lost. But um, then it's 1980. Like as soon as EPUBs come in, the kind of Bermuda Triangle disappears somewhat. So I don't know, not sure what there is to be... Uh, taken from that. If you've had any strange experiences in and around that part of the world, I'd absolutely like to hear of them. My, I'm always open to facts. I'm always open to the idea that this could have happened because of this unusual set of circumstances. There's billions of people on this planet and each day we make billions of decisions um, which lead sometimes to pretty incredible situations. And it's good to understand, is this a totally black swan event or do we have an area here where a lot of things keep coming together and creating problems? I don't think the Bermuda Triangle has any more incidents than any other well-trafficked part of the world. It does, though, have some very interesting weather situations which could be of particular risk to leisure boat uh, operators who are looking to make that leap off from the American mainland to the islands and not necessarily realizing where their skill set's at, where their equipment's at. Uh, underestimating the challenge and not realizing that actually that little strip of blue is quite a difficult piece of water to cross if you're not being careful. So yeah, if you've had any experiences there, please do share them with us. And as always, if you've got any other questions that you want to have answered, I'm starting to stack these up. I also discovered recently that um, there's been people leaving some very kind comments uh, uh, for the podcast reviews on uh, Apple. I, did, I wasn't really looking at that as a place that I'm communicating with people. I'm much wiser to it now. I think we have a 4.9 rating with 50 odd uh, reviews on uh, on the Apple podcast which is brilliant thank you very much and there's some people asking questions there which I'll now get round to adding to the list uh, the next one I've been looking at trying to what the schedule is the Reynolds Call Reads podcast is very much settled into um, Monday to Friday now and uh, I, I'm doing that because you know when you're doing this kind of stuff when you're creating content and getting it out there it's really important that you see the kind of numbers coming back that means that what you have created is being um is is being accessed and is being enjoyed by people whenever i put out podcasts on saturday and sunday i think people might be busy with other stuff on saturday saturdays and sundays um so that going out on monday to friday this podcast uh, we're on tuesday now doing this and tuesday seems to be a very good day for podcasts i'm thinking either thursday or friday maybe friday's good um to do another one and we're going to be looking at something very specific this was given to me as an idea by uh, one of the listeners, and that is that the safety report for the loss of life in the recent Newport Bermuda race, I was actually a competitor in that race as well, there was uh, unfortunately a gentleman lost off one of the boats 
um, in the Newport Bermuda race. And the reports come out now from US Sailing. I read over it just myself a couple of hours ago, and um, I think there's some things to be learned from that. I think there's some things that went very, very well in the uh, person overboard uh, uh, evolution, which was done by the crew of that vessel. There is a fatality there, but I don't think it's really connected to their actions in, in that terrible moment when they realize that someone's in the water. But there are definitely some things which are, are learnt. And whenever a loss of life occurs, it's always very important that from that uh, are taken lessons which can help others to survive in similar circumstances in the future. So on Friday, we're going to be putting that out. They'll be going out at uh, midday uh, Eastern Standard Time. And uh, I'm going to have a, a somber uh, look at that. Uh, I say somber for me. It was the captain of a vessel who was within 100 miles of me doing the same event. And, uh, you know, that kind of brings it very close to home as I was also captaining a boat in the same event and uh, there but for the grace of God go I. So, um, yeah, we'll be having a look at that. And that kind of fits into the um, Survival at Sea series that we've been doing. Uh, we've been working our way through the RYA Survival at Sea book, which is Apsi Accent by Keith Colwell. And the next element in that is going to be life rafts. So um, as we've just finished life jackets and the incident uh, in the Newport Bermuda race does involve the... Uh, a life jacket not being worn at the moment that it was most needed. I think it's appropriate to include that. Um, but yeah, that's going to be uh, Friday. And uh, yeah, that's it. So I think uh, if we can now dispense with the Bermuda Triangle as a, a mystery uh, that no one knows what's going on and recognize instead the absolute caution required to traverse the Triangle of Bermuda, I think we'll all be much better off. But wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I hope that you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.